In the third verse of the power of the cross, as we come to the end of the verse, it starts out, it says, Now the day- daylight flees, now the ground beneath quakes as the maker bows his head. The curtains torn in two, the dead are raised to life. Finished the victory cry. And we just sang it, finished the victory cry. You need to say finished with a little bit of a raised voice. Finished. Can you say that? Finished. No, no, no. Power. Finished. There you go. That's better. We can all go home. I'm just kidding. Joshua chapter, well, let's go to chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. We are more than conquerors. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, Since God is for us, who can be against us? The word since is a, the Greek construction warrants a conclusion, not a question. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Since. In other words, it's not if or not when, it's since. This is the victory is ours in Christ. Since God before us, who can be against us? In that same chapter, in fact, you know, if you go to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to have to preach a series just on that chapter. It's just a phenomenal chapter of the incredible blessings we have since we have not been condemned. But one of them is, since God before us, who can be against us? That's a conclusion, not a question. He is for us. Why? It's finished. But then verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oftentimes I'll read this passage when going and trying to comfort some, a loved one. Maybe there's uh, some difficulty they're faced or maybe someone has passed away. But this, that, that section of that passage, those familiar with that chapter is, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why is that? Because we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us all. Because it's finished. This is a compound word, by the way. It says more than conquerors. It's a compound Greek word that means overconquer or to conquer completely without any real threat to personal life and health. We are overconquerors. We are more than conquerors. There's really, you know, really, there's no threat to our personal safety or health. There's nothing the devil can do to us. There's no sin that can overtake us, but that God can forgive us and, and change us. Because we are more than conquerors. So as we keep that in mind as we go into this, the chapters here uh, of chapter 6 through 12, we are more than conquerors. Okay, I'm going to throw a map up there for you to see. I'm just going to kind of talk you through that. Can you see that? Can you see the red arrows? Okay, that's the important stuff. <laughs> if you go through chapter 6 to 9, this, this is the conquest of Canaan. It, now, it's not complete, but it's very decisive. They see the middle arrow going across there. They cross the Jordan. They camp at Gilgal. They defeat Jericho. They defeat Ai, and they make this treaty with Gibeon. This all happens in chapter 6 through 9. These, this is the, called the central campaign as they go through uh, there. I, I know you can't see the names and stuff, but you can see the red arrows. That's the important thing. 
So if you, if you get the picture there of Canaan, and as they go through to conquer it, this is what's happening. All right, so now you come to chapter 10. Now chapter 10 is the southern campaign. As you look at the arrows there on the map, these are the, this is the, they circle around, they come back out, and heads over there to Gaza. Uh, okay, this is, the, this is the southern campaign. Five city-states. What happens is, after Gibeon makes this treaty with Israel, these city-states, these five kings get together because they're ticked off at the Gibeonites. And they know they're next in line. And so they get together and they're going to they're go punish the Gibeonites because they made this treaty with Israel. So they won't have to go to war. Well, the Gibeonites send a message to Joshua and said, By the way, didn't you make a covenant, a promise with us that you would protect us? And, of course, Joshua, honoring, they were honoring that covenant. They were honoring the word. They came to the rescue. This is about a 25-mile trip. Previously, it took them about three days. They marched overnight. Okay? And I can't explain that. Maybe God gave them some extra strength, but they marched overnight to be there to defend uh, the, the Gibeonites. So Joshua came to rescue. And then there's, in this chapter, chapter 10, uh, 10, as you read through it, and get down there, verse 11, 12 to 14, you have this phenomenal, this incredible miracle. As uh, he's fighting this army and this uh, uh, coming up to this battle here, and then they're, they're chasing him, God begins to rain down hailstones. These were big hailstones. These were killer hailstones. So God marvelously, miraculously demonstrated his power, intervened, and rained down hailstones on uh, the armies they're fighting against. And then Joshua realized that, you know what, this is, this is I'm not going to be able to finish this battle, and we don't want to carry it over the next day. So Joshua prays, and the sun stands still. Now, I, I know you, you're saying that's impossible, Pastor Ken. I know it is too. But it did. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. I don't doubt that any more than I doubt the creation. Any more than I doubt the resurrection. Those are all incredible miracles. I can't explain those things. It defies, it defies the natural laws. But yet he prayed and the sun stood still. It, it, the day got longer. He was able to defeat the armies. This happens in chapter 10. I mean, you've got to read the story. It's an incredible story. So he defeats the armies. The summary of the campaign is, I'm going to read down verse 40 to 43 in chapter 10. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south, and the lowland, the wilderness slopes, all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that had breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time, because... The Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. So they'd gone through the central campaign. They finished the southern campaign. They returned to Gilgal. This is their, their home base. And then we get to chapter 11. And it came to pass when Jabin king of Hazor heard these things, that he sent to Jabob king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaph. And he continues on the list of kings. Now, if you look at the very top, the top arrow, where it ends, that's where 
the king of Hazor. That's the city of Hazor. That's where that is. You see the middle arrow, the first middle arrow? That's where Gilgal is. Joshua, this confederation of city-states, that was all the way up there to Hazor. He went all the way up there, but he basically, I believe, had to fight his way up as uh, he went. But anyway, this, this confederation, historian Josephus uh, says not only were they superior in, in number, but they were superior in armament. He estimates that there was 300,000 soldiers, that there was over 20,000 chariots, and 10,000 cavalry. The force they were going to, to meet was, was incredible. It was overwhelming. But God instructed Joshua how to neutralize their army. He hamstrung the horses. Well, that took away, and burned the chariots, by the way. <laughs> you know, they hamstrung the horse. Well, that, that took away the, their ability for the cavalry, and it made them, I'm not trying to be uh, close a pun, but it made them of equal footing. I was said that wasn't funny, not, they, I, you know, but, but they were on equal footing. They had an opportunity because God had a plan and Joshua followed God's plan to bring it to pass. The summary is found, I'm not going to read all of it there, but in chapter, chapter 11, verse 16 to 23, uh, of their obedience and their complete success. So that completed, at this point, the Central Campaign, Southern Campaign, and Northern Campaign. And these were, uh, uh, there, was, there were still things to be conquered. This, wasn't, this didn't finish the job, but this got rid of the major obstacles to the land of Canaan. In fact, we see one of the next things that Joshua does, he divides the land between the tribes. And then, then they're responsible to go into their land, the section that they own, and uh, totally conquer it. Now, this was a daunting task to try to get this in my own mind to kind of figure out, okay, so what? So what does that mean? Here we are, we're more than conquerors. What I did was, I have five valuable truths for the day of battle. If we are going to be more than conquerors, we must urge or wage war God's way. And so I, I, from this, and listen, let me tell you something. There's probably ten valuable truths in these chapters. I just got five. Let me give you the first one. The first one, the people of God must expect resistance. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as far as done Jericho. And its king, so he had done to all Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made the peace. They feared greatly, and that's when he went and got this coalition of five. Uh. So you listen. But what do we learn from that? The people of God must expect resistance. You're going to be resisted. You may be, it may be a trial you face. It may be a difficulty you face. It may be physical. It may be emotional. Uh, it may be financial. You're going, you're going to face resistance. It may be someone who questions your faith or mocks your faith. As I said earlier, we, this, is a, this Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. 
And so you must, you must, listen, you must expect resistance. If you don't, if you don't, then you're not prepared for it. And many times when resistance comes, it lays you flat. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 13, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, will, will suffer persecution. Not if. You will suffer persecution. Now, you may not suffer the persecution that maybe someone in China would suffer. You may not suffer the persecution that maybe someone in India would suffer or someone in Africa. But you will suffer some type of persecution. You, you must expect resistance. Secondly, the people of God must be committed to obedience. We see there in chapter 10, verse 40. And then again in eleven fifteen, but 10, verse 40. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south, the lowland, the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left nothing remaining but utterly destroyed all that he breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. You must be committed to be obedience. The word commitment or committed means to pledge or to bind oneself to a course of action. Luke 9.27 or 9.23, this is a commitment to follow Jesus. Sometimes this is called the cost of discipleship. Then he said to all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's not only lifelong, but it's a daily activity. That daily commitment, lifelong commitment. I was thinking of Faith Bible Church. There's people in our church that have been here longer, for many, many years. I think of their commitment. There's many who have been here all the years that I've been here. I think of their level of commitment. Listen. There's so many things that came up against Faith Bible Church that it shouldn't even be in existence. It's the grace of God. Because of God's committed people. To be committed. David Livingston, who was a congregational missionary that was a pioneer in opening Africa to missions. He was a man of science. He was an explorer. He was against slavery but he was also a missionary. A mission society wrote to David Livingston and asked, Have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know how to send other men to you. Livingston wrote back, If you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there's no road at all. I want men who are committed. See, the people of God must be committed to obedience. Obedience is submission to another's control, to another's orders. It's to swallow your ego and your pride and realize, you know what, somebody else may know better than I do. Submission. Obedience. Submission to another's order. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Well, First Samuel 15. Uh, if you, you're familiar with First Samuel 15, aren't you? Who's the main character? Saul, King Saul. Who are the, who's the enemy? Lifelong enemy of Israel. The Amalekites, the dreaded, the hated Amalekites, descendants of Esau. And God, this has been a constant conflict between them, and God gave him specific instructions. He was to go in, 
kill the king, annihilate, eliminate the people, and, and just obliterate everything. Saul had his own ideas. And uh, God gave the message to Samuel that things were not the way they were supposed to be. And he sent Samuel to see Saul. And when he's walking in to see Saul, he heard the bleeding of cattle and the, the uh, mooing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. And then he also found out that King Agag was still alive. So he confronted Saul. Why have you done this? Why haven't you obeyed? And Saul said, just like we would, I wanted to serve God better by making sacrifices to him. That's why we kept the best of the lambs, or the best of the sheep, and the best of the cattle. Well, that wasn't acceptable to Samuel. He pushed a little bit harder, just like sometimes when we get people trying to hold us accountable, they push a little harder, and we're thinking, man, I wish they'd just leave me alone. And Saul said, well, the people made me do it. He wants to shift blame. And finally, as it all comes to culmination, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, this is what Samuel says to Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to take heed than, to, than the fat of rams. To obey is better than sacrifice. Listen, the people of God must expect uh, re- resistance and they must be committed to obedience. First lesson. Second lesson. Peace of God. God was reminding Joshua that he's still in control. The peace of God. Chapter 10, verse 8a. Fear them not. Chapter 11, verse 6a. Do not be afraid. Certainly a reminder of what he already promised in chapter 1. Be strong and very courageous. The peace of God. Listen, we can have the peace of God because we know he's on our side. He's still in control. Everything could be topsy-turvy. In fact, if you go, to, go over there to Psalm 46, this is, this is sometimes entitled the Song of Holy Confidence. Psalm 46, verse 1 and 2. It says, God is our refuge. That was true when David wrote it, and it's still true today. He is our refuge. That is our security. God is our refuge and strength. It was true when David wrote it then, and it's still true today. He is our security, and he's our strength. A very personal, present help. Present. Not maybe. Not future. Not past. Present help in trouble. That's satisfaction. See, he's our security, he's our strength, he is our satisfaction. I don't have to look other places for satisfaction. He is my satisfaction. The peace of God. Therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, we will not fear. See, God was reminding Joshua that he's still in control. Proverbs 21.31, I love Proverbs 21.31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. But the battle, the victory, is the Lord's. There's nothing wrong. You need to be prepared for the battle. But you know what? Ultimately, who's in charge? God is. The peace of God. And I can go forth tomorrow, today, and have the peace of God, even though I may be in terrible, receiving terrible resistance. 
knowing, you know what, God knows what is best and I need to learn what I need to learn from this situation and be more conformed to the image of his son. I can have the peace of God even in this trauma. Though the, the earth is vomiting up, is flowing forth, I can have peace. The peace of God. Third lesson. There's the promise of God. If you look there in verse chapter 10, verse, the second part of verse A, and also chapter 11, second part of verse 6. There you go, the promise of God. For I will deliver them into your hand, not a man of them shall stand before you. And then chapter 11, verse 6. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. God delivers the promise of absolute victory. We sang a little bit about that. A participation in the community this morning is part of that victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56 and 57. The, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, if I was just left by myself, if you were just left for yourself, you'd be dead. Thanks be to God for the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God delivers the promise of absolute victory. Listen, God has not changed. If he's not changed, then who has? We have. We bring our doubts and our fears. Rather than relying upon the promise of God. Romans 8, verse 37, 38. I already related a little bit to that. It said, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, creatured thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because of that, we are more than conquerors. We are over-conquerors. The, the people of God, the peace of God, the promise of God. The fourth lesson. The power of God. Nothing is too big for God to accomplish, and nothing is too little for him to use in accomplishing it. That, folks, is a true statement. And that's the power of God. The the hailstorm, the heavens where he caused the sun to stand still, or he, he prolonged that day. Jeremiah chapter 32 Verse 7, I again have used this before as we've been preaching through Joshua. Behold, I'm the Lord, the Lord of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The answer, of course, is no. <laughs> There's nothing too hard for you. We don't have to go through in the arm of the flesh. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We have the power of God who overcame sin. On our behalf, we can rely upon the power of God. Nothing's too big for God to accomplish. Nothing is too little for him to use in accomplishing it. Heal the sick, restore a relationship, divine protection. Many times he supernaturally intervenes. 
But most often, he uses natural means. The doctor's diagnosis, the medication. The other thing I thought of when God supernaturally intervenes on our behalf, we probably don't even know it at the time. But he does. He was keeping you from that car accident. He was keeping you from that illness, but you didn't know it. He supernaturally intervenes. John Hamby gives this explanation of the hailstorm and the sun standing still. He says, There's a lot of discussion about this second miracle, the day the sun stood still. You can read lots of different opinions of what God did. Some maintain it is a poetic language, but I don't believe that these words are merely poetic imagery, nor do I know how God did it. All I know is that one day in history, God intervened on behalf of his people and their leader, Joshua. I don't believe that the earth stopped its rotation or that the sun and moon actually stopped in their paths, but I do know that somehow God prolonged the daylight to give Israel enough daylight to finish the battle. I do not know that God intervened. I do know that God intervened and fought for Israel, and He gave them the victory that day. Perhaps the simplest answer to the to the question is faith. God says through His prophet Jeremiah thirty-two verse twenty-seven, "Behold, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me?" I don't understand it either. It's an absolute miracle, but I accept it by faith. Just as I accept that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, by faith. Just as I accept that Christ died on the cross for me, by faith. It's a miracle. You think of the miracle of birth. Every time a child is born, it's a miracle. Every time a person is born again, it's a miracle. It's faith. We have the people of God. We have the peace of God, the promise of God, the power of God, and finally the fifth lesson I want to call attention to this morning is the prayer to God. Never underestimate the power of prayer. In verse 12 of chapter 10, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said to the, to the, in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and the moon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Never underestimate the power of prayer. Joshua prayed, the day was prolonged. Jeremiah 33, 3. This is a great verse. If you haven't memorized it, you ought to. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. The power of prayer. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 in the garden before he was arrested. The trials took place before the crucifixion. He prayed for himself and he prayed for his disciples. First Thessalonians 5, 17, we are commanded to pray. Pray without ceasing. Any place, any time, about anything. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we're encouraged to bring our petitions before God. He says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have to hesitate. Just come boldly. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, 
Prayer to overcome worry and anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, pray with submission to God's will. He says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I'm not presuming on God. I'm commanded to pray. I'm following the example of Christ in praying. We're told to come boldly before the throne of grace and pray. I'm not presuming on him that he's going to answer the way I want, but I know this, if it's his will, he's going to answer the way he wants. It may be now, it may be later, or it may not be at all. Sometimes he might even be all combination of all three, something we totally unexpected. But here's the thing. When we pray, are we really watching to see what the next thing God does? And because it isn't the one the thing we want done, we suddenly think, well, it must not have been God's will. Well, maybe it wasn't the way we wanted it done, but it was God's will the way he wanted it done. In his time. His way. I have two illustrations. I have a personal one, and I have two illustrations that came across to talk about this power of prayer. Uh, Some of you know Josh McDowell. He's a leading... A Christian, been in youth activity forever. He's older than I am, I think, uh, but just really ministered to youth. He was attending seminary in California. His father went home to be with the Lord. His mother had died years earlier, but Josh was not sure of her salvation. He became depressed, thinking that she might be lost. Was she a Christian or not? The thought obsessed him. Lord, he prayed, somehow give me the answer so I can get back to normal. I'm just, I've just got to know. It seemed like an impossible request. Two days later, Josh drove out to the ocean. He walked to the end of the pier to to be alone. There sat an older woman in a lawn chair fishing. Where's your home originally, she asked. Michigan, Union City, Josh replied. Nobody's heard of it. I tell people it's a suburb of, and she interrupted, Battle Creek. I had a cousin from there. Do you know the McDowell family? Stunned, Josh replied. Yes, I'm Josh McDowell. I can't believe it, said the woman. I'm a cousin to your mother. Do you remember anything at all about my mother's spiritual life? Asked Josh. Why, sure. Your mom and I were just girls, teenagers, when we went to a tent revival. It was the fourth night. We both went forward to accept Christ. Praise God, shouted Josh, starting to startling the surrounding fishermen. James Gilmore, a missionary to Mongolia, was once asked to treat some wounded soldiers. Although he was not a doctor, he had some knowledge of first aid, so he felt he could not refuse the request. He dressed the wounds of two of the men, but a third had a badly broken thigh bone. The missionary had no idea what to do for such an injury. Kneeling beside the man, he asked the Lord for help. He didn't know how God would answer his prayer, but he was confident that his need would be supplied. He couldn't find any books on the physiology in the primitive hospital. No doctor had arrived. To complicate matters, a crowd of beggars came to him asking for money. He was deeply concerned about his patient. Yet his heart went out to those ragged paupers. Hurriedly, he gave them a small gift, plus a few kind words of spiritual admonition. A moment later, he lifted his head and and saw, to his amazement, one weary beggar who had remained behind. 
The half-starved fellow was like little more than a living skeleton. The missionary suddenly realized that the Lord had brought him a walking lesson in anatomy. He asked the elderly man if he might examine him. After, after carefully tracing the femur bone with his fingers to learn how to treat the soldier's broken leg, he returned to the patient and was able to set the fracture. Years afterward, Gilmore often related how God had provided him with a strange yet sufficient response to his earnest prayer. When we raise our petitions, we too can be certain that the Lord will help us, even though the answer comes by way of those who have no power. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. Let me conclude. If we are to be more than conquerors, in the day of battle, the people of God must expect resistance and be committed to obedience. If we are to be more than conquerors in the day of battle, we must embrace the peace of God. Fear not. If we are to be more than conquerors in the day of battle, remember the promises of God. I will deliver. If we are to be more than conquerors in the day of battle, we can rest on the power of God. He brought the hail, and he caused the sun to stand still. If we be more than conquerors, in the day of battle, there's prayer to God. Our dependence and our devotion rest on a God who answers our prayers. He will show us great and mighty things that we can't even comprehend. Father, I pray that we will learn these lessons, that we'll embrace these truths, that we'll see their value that even this day we may begin to practice one of them or two of them or through the week practice all five as we enter this battleground, this fierce resistance that you've already given us the victory through Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you would like someone to show you from the word of God after the service, privately, I would not embarrass you, but if you're here this morning and you'd like to be saved, is there anyone like that? Secondly, if you're here this morning and say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. I'm in a battle. Any others? Yes. It's real. Yes. Father, I pray, God, as we go forward, not only will we uphold each other in prayer, but indeed that uh, our lives, not just lifelong, but daily, will draw attention to you because of what you've already accomplished in and for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.